0: Good morning. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you so much, worship team. Um, So good to see all of you. It's good to have um, some past Coast members here with us again. So good to see all of you. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 13, which is a great passage to look at this morning in light of what Susan shared, in light of what we've been singing. 1 Corinthians 13. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, as well as some other books at the same time. And we're up to verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 13 this morning, which is really a great chapter to talk about anytime, time, but it's especially a great chapter to talk about in the light of, in light of where we are as a culture, in light of the fact that one of the things that is, as I've said before, wafting through the air that we breathe in our culture, is the idea that love is love, which means regardless of who you're loving, how you're loving, um, what you're loving, it's all equal, it's all the same, it's all acceptable, it's all approved. Love is love. There's no distinction to be made. And ultimately, in a culture like this, um, love becomes God. Whatever you call love becomes the thing that you worship in a sense. And so the phrase love is love is interesting because there's a song about uh, two women who are in a romantic relationship and it's entitled Love is Love. There are children bo- children's books entitled Love is Love that are produced by the LGBTQ community. There's a movie by that name and it is a slogan um, in what is called the rainbow community. Uh, trying to argue that regardless of the situation, regardless of who's involved, uh, love is love. And obviously, if there is no God and there is no standard to evaluate that kind of statement, then you can understand how people could embrace that and think, well, that seems to be um, the fair thing, the good thing, the right thing to say, right? Right. Um, Why would we say that one kind of love is not um, equal to another kind of love or isn't right? If there is really no standard for right and wrong. And that's where we are in our culture. And so one of the things that's helpful is to start with just the, the idea of a worldview. I mean, obviously, like Mark and Susan going into a different culture Every culture has a world view. They look at life through a certain lens, through a certain grid. Uh, they think about God in a certain way. They think about man in a certain way. Uh, obviously, if they've been exposed to the message of the gospel, they think about that in a certain way. And so for all of us, we have to ask the question: how do I evaluate what I hear and what I see? What is my grid? What is my lens? I wear contacts and I wear glasses, and so if I don't have those contacts and glasses, things are very fuzzy for me. And I have to kind of guess at what uh, things might be, especially the further away they are. And for a lot of people, that's the way they look at life. Things are kind of fuzzy, and so they kind of determine in their own minds what it is they're seeing and how they should evaluate that. The Bible gives us a worldview. It gives us a grid, and it tells us, things about God, about man, and, it, and the truths that it tells us are all meant to move us in a certain direction. It's all meant to move us toward love. If the truth I believe and the truth I understand doesn't make me more loving, then there's a problem with my understanding or my application of that truth. And so when we talk about God, the view of the Christian God is that he is the supreme good. And he did create us to be holy and to be happy in his love, not apart from him. But the problem with man is we are idol worshippers. We worship something other than the God who created us. and Therefore, we look to created things, people, possessions, other things, for the help we need and the happiness we long for. And that creates all kinds of relational problems. It produces all kinds of sin once we've embraced that sin. Jesus came to rectify that situation, to deliver us from sin in order that we might be satisfied in God and his love for us. And so he, he came as the double cure, to live the life we could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die. Then he rose from the dead as the only Lord and Savior. And as a result of the good news, God calls everyone to two things, basically. Faith and love. And that faith is a call to repent, turn from my own self righteousness, and trust Jesus as my Savior, my righteousness, and to turn from my own self determination and to trust Jesus as my Lord, to receive Him for who He really is, and to rest in Him for the pardon I need, the perfection I need, and to hope in God for what he's promised me through Jesus, to hope in him for the help I need and the happiness my heart longs for. And all of that is meant to move me to love in the way that God calls me to love. And it's important how we define love. And when you think about the different ways the Bible talks about love, one way to summarize that is to say that love is the obedience of faith. Love is something that comes out of my faith in God and in Jesus in light of all the truths we've just talked about. And it is actually an obedience to God that love does not happen apart from obedience to God and obedience to his word. And therefore, submission to God's word and submission to God's will is very much what love looks like. And what I want to do as we go through 1 Corinthians 13, as we begin to do that this Sunday, is just to highlight the fact that we may not really realize how important it is to truly submit ourselves to what the Bible says and to submit ourselves to the very circumstances that God puts us in in order to love in the way that he calls us to love. And so, again, whatever worldview I have, whatever truth I say I believe, ought to be moving me toward the love that God calls me to. And if because of the truth I'm learning and I'm studying and I'm applying, if it's not making me more loving, then there's something wrong there. That's exactly what Paul is dealing with here in the church in Corinth. They were a church that were, uh, they were gifted greatly, had all kinds of spiritual gifts. And they'd been taught by Paul for a year and a half. And yet, they lacked the love that Paul is talking about here. And so, he's challenging them in light of that. And so, let me read for us 1 Corinthians 13, a a chapter that's very familiar to all of us. But hopefully, God will apply it to our lives in a fresh, new way this morning. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love... I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous, Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known." But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray again. Father, we just ask for the Holy Spirit to help us as we look at your word this morning. We pray that you would work at our hearts to conform us more and more to the image of Christ, to convict us of our sin, to comfort us in the knowledge that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners to convince us of your love for us and to convince us of your promises to us in Christ and to cause us to walk in obedience to your word and obedience to all that you've called us to, indeed, to walk in love. And we pray that you do this all for the glory of your name alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, love is an important topic. All of us probably like the idea of talking about love, and for good reason. Uh, love is something that we celebrate in all kinds of ways. We celebrate it when people uh, talk about their wedding anniversaries or talk about the birth of a child or whatever it might be. Love is tends to be somehow associated excuse me, with the things that we celebrate. Well, Paul here is talking about the importance of love and There are three main things that I want us to think about from this chapter. One is that love is truly important. It is essential. Uh, Paul is going to argue that it is absolutely essential. That without it, there is no reason to celebrate. The second thing that he highlights is, he highlights that we really need to be able to picture what love looks like and to see the excellence of love And to see it in its proper context, which is a sinful world where people do not love us as they should. And then finally, he talks about the permanence of love and the fact that love endures anything and everything. And that's why love is ultimately to the glory of God. And so what I want us to do as we go through this chapter over the next several weeks, I'm going to take a little more time with this chapter because I think we really need to think it through, especially in light of all that's going on in our culture. Um, The question for all of us is, when we think about our relationships, is what is my goal for my relationships? What is the goal for my marriage? What is the goal for my relationship with my children, with my relationship with my siblings or my parents, uh, my relationships with people at work? What is my goal for those relationships? And is the kind of love that Paul is talking about here the goal for those relationships? Or is it really something else? Is it something really less than what Paul is talking about here? Because Paul is highlighting the fact that the Corinthians were obviously pursuing something different. They were pursuing something else besides the love that he's talking about here. Um, There was a a Republican uh, member of the House of Representatives, I think from Pennsylvania, back when Abraham Lincoln was president. And at one point, at least according to the movie Lincoln, uh, this gentleman who was fighting for the abolition of slavery looks at Lincoln and he says, who cares about the people and what they want and what they're ready for? I don't care at all about the people and what they want. This is the face, talking about himself, this is the face of someone who has fought long and hard for the good of the people without caring much for any of them. I just think about what he's saying. He's saying, I am pursuing the good of the people of our nation in fighting slavery, which is a good thing that he was doing. But he says, but I don't care much for the people that I'm pursuing this good for In light of that, let's read again the first three verses of this chapter. Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. I think that's exactly what Paul would say and indeed God would say to Thaddeus Stevens uh, if that's indeed what he actually told Abraham Lincoln. That would be, those first three verses would be the response to that. That in all your pursuit of, quote, good, it's nothing in the eyes of God. Paul is highlighting the fact, and this is part of the issues going on in the church in Corinth. He's highlighting the fact that we can be really impressed with eloquent speech. We can be impressed with great singing voices. We can be really impressed with people performing on the stage and those kinds of things. Paul says, if it's not motivated by love, then there's a problem. We can be very impressed with what people do whether it's trying to abolish slavery or whether it's um, moving mountains, whatever it might be, uh, which removing mountains was a a figurative many times of really difficult things. Um, We can be impressed with what people do to overcome negative, difficult circumstances and to help other people in the process. And yet Paul can say, but if love isn't really what's being expressed there, there's a problem. We can be impressed with the sacrifices that are peop- that people are willing to make, that they can even go to the point of giving up all that they have, including their own life. But if it's not motivated by the kind of love that's being talked about here, there's a problem. And the reality is we look at those things and we can affirm that, An eloquent eloquent speaker, that's a good thing. Um, You know, someone who's uh, able to overcome difficulties, that's a good thing. Uh, You know, sacrificing for others, that's a good thing. And yet, doing good things isn't simply the issue. That God looks beyond just what we sound like, what we appear like, what we do, to the heart of the matter. And that's exactly what um, Paul is talking about here. I mean, ultimately, the priority of love is exactly what Jesus said in John fifteen twelve when he said, this is my commandment that you love one another. He could summarize all of his commandments into one. This is my commandment that you love one another. If you don't do that, you don't fulfill the rest of those commandments. Or John could say in 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So that our relationship with God is very much about love. And so what I'd like to do with the time that we have here is just think a little bit more about the first three verses. Think about the context of it. Think about why Paul is even bringing this up right here in the middle of this discussion that he's having with them. What is the love that he says, is required, and finally, what is really the the heart of the truth that's being talked about here. Well, the context of all this, as can be seen if you read chapter 12 and chapter 14, is a discussion of the spiritual gifts, that Paul is uh, dealing with problems in the church in Corinth. He's answering questions from the church in Corinth, and one of those questions had to do with the issue of spiritual gifts. And they were in a place where some people had certain gifts that other people didn't have. And if you had certain gifts, people thought that was wonderful and you were great. If you didn't have those gifts, then you were just a second-class citizen of sorts. And you either envied those with the gifts that you didn't have or you look down on those who didn't have the special gifts that you did have. And so Paul, in chapter 12, talks about the importance of spiritual gifts. He doesn't say they're unimportant. He doesn't say just stop exercising your gifts. But he says they are important because they're gifts from the Holy Spirit. They're gifts from God. And they're meant to ultimately exalt Jesus. So they're really important. And the reality is God has given us those gifts to unite us, not divide us. Oddly enough, Satan uses the very thing that God designs For unity to bring about division. And that's why we have to be on our guard. But Paul in chapter 12 says, The gifts of the Spirit are like members of your body. You really need your feet, even if you think your eyes are really special. Uh, You really need your ears. You need your hands. All the parts of the body are important. Every member of the body of Christ, every member of the church has a gift, and those gifts are important to the function of the body. Then at the end, he says the most important gifts are the word-oriented gifts simply because they help us understand how to exercise the other gifts. Not because they're inherently more important so that you can look down on others who don't have those word-oriented gifts. They're more important because they provide a vision for what all the gifts are supposed to look like in practice and how they're supposed to operate And so he says at the end of chapter 12, earnestly desire the greater gifts, the word-oriented gifts, because of that function that they have, and, or but, I show you a still more excellent way. So that's the way he introduces 1 Corinthians 13. Let me tell you something that's even more important than what we've been talking about with regard to the spiritual gifts, which you value so much. There's something more important than spiritual gifts. And he's talking about the gift of love, which is the greatest gift of all. Now, people have looked at 1 Corinthians 13, and they've asked the question, why did Paul put this here? Here, And some people think he just decided to insert it uh, for some odd reason, or maybe even no good reason. Some people think it was written even before he wrote uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and he just decided to stick it in there. But if you look closely, you realize that he's talking about spiritual gifts and he's, he's applying it to the church there in a very careful way. He's not simply providing them with wedding material. I've done many weddings and I've often used 1 Corinthians 13. There's nothing wrong with using 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding. There's nothing wrong with um, extolling the excellence of love in light of 1 Corinthians 13. But that is not the original reason why Paul gave this chapter. It's not a poem celebrating love that's simply meant to be used at weddings. What it really is, is a rebuke. That's exactly what it is. It is a rebuke to the Corinthians for their failure to, to love, especially with regard to the spiritual gifts. They've been looking down on one another. They've been envying one another. They've been fighting among each other. They've been dividing over all kinds of things. And so what Paul is actually doing is he's lovingly rebuking their lack of love because all that he talks about here is the same kind of thing that they're not doing. He's highlighting for them that they're not loving, which ought to be the fruit of the truth that they've received in the gospel. He's trying to help them to see that their claim of faith in Jesus isn't producing the fruit that it ought to produce, and he does it very lovingly uh, as he talks about the love. It's kind of like if um, If they heard this for the first time, we might have thought they would have responded with, wow, what a great, excellent love poem. When really, if they heard what Paul was saying, they would have said, ouch, that hits close to home. Paul is highlighting for us that we aren't really loving each other as we should. Well, if you were to see a shirt that said, got love with a question mark, um, and someone were to ask you, got love, what would you say? Or if you ask someone on the street, got love, like got milk, got love, uh, what would be the kind of thing that comes to mind? What's well, important when we realize that that Paul is talking about a kind of love here, in fact, In verse 4, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing, when it says love is patient, there's actually an article before the Greek word love. The love is patient. The love I'm talking about, which is not any kind of love, but the love that God calls us to is of a particular sort. And the interesting thing about love is that there are basically two kinds of love. There's love that is drawn out of me, And there's love that is given. Uh, What I mean by that is the Greeks had different words for love, too. They had uh, a word for family love. You know, if I see someone who's my kin, most of the time there's a love that's just drawn out of us. You know, if I have a child, um, because that child is my child, that's going to draw a love out of me. Uh, they also had a, a word for ro- romantic love. So if I look at someone, and they're very tr- attractive to me, uh, I look at them and I say, oh, I love that person. It, it draws that love out of me. Or if I have a good friend that I really enjoy being around, and I think about but that person, and it draws love out of me because of what they um, do for me. And you can even apply it to things like, I love hot dogs or I love cake, or I love uh, pecan pie, or whatever it might be. What is that all about? It's because of what it does for me, for the benefit. It draws praise out of me, and yet Paul is highlighting the fact that those, those things are fine. I mean, there is a basis for romantic love like that, and enjoying pecan pie and enjoying your friends and all those things and there's even a place for i love that person because they love me so well my love for them is drawn out by their love for me there's a place for all of that but ultimately there's a problem if there isn't a foundation under those love those kinds of love that goes much deeper than that that isn't simply a love that's drawn out of me. Because what if that person isn't attractive? What if that person doesn't love me? What if that person isn't my kin? What 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 then? Do I have no responsibility to love them? Is is it okay if I don't love them? Well, the kind of love that Paul is talking about here is a love that is ultimately a gift not something that's just drawn out of me it's something that isn't drawn out of me necessarily but i freely give it one kind of love is almost involuntary if i eat a, if i eat pecan pie i don't have to decide whether or not i love it or not it just comes out of me involuntarily but there might be certain situations and certain relationships where it's not coming out of me involuntarily so what am i going to do with that It has to be a voluntary thing. I have to give that love. And that's the kind of love. That's what uh, the Bible means when it talks about agape love, which we're going to talk more about this next week, which is a little more complex than that. But when it comes to us loving other people, us loving sinners, the idea is very much that I am to give my love away, not simply wait until it's drawn out of me, and that's so important in so many ways. But it comes down to the the recognition that God has loved us that way. God hasn't looked at us and said, "You guys are so lovely." That my love for you is just drawn out. The Bible says that we are rebels naturally, and we have spit in God's face, and we we've said. No, thank you. And the Bible says that God did not have to love us, but he chose to love us. It was a voluntary thing when God sent his son. He he wasn't compelled by how wonderful we were, how much we loved him in return, how attractive we were, or anything like that. It was totally voluntary. And that's why it says in verses like, Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit was given to us and therefore the love of God was given to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Let me just uh, highlight for us as we move on a little bit. Verse 1. Look again at verse 1. He says... I speak with the tongues of men and of, and of angels, but do not have love. I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And when he talks about speaking with the tongues of men and of angels, some people think he means that the gift of tongues was either human language or angelic language. Others would say Paul is being hyperbolic because the whole, all three verses he's talking about things like if I have all faith all knowledge. Uh, if I can remove you know, all mountains, if I can give all my possessions away and have my body to be burned, he's speaking in a hyperbolic way, meaning if I have every possible language that you could have and speak eloquently in the greatest way possible, if I do the greatest things that a person could do, if I could sacrifice in the greatest ways people could sacrifice, but if I don't have love... There's a huge, huge problem. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The idea, the noisy gong is like a piece of brass that is just uh, ringing, a ringing piece of glass or a clanging cymbal, like a wailing noise. Be almost like, if you could imagine, a noise that just grates on your nerves. And you can't wait to get away from it. You think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying when God and when the halls of heaven look at, see, and listen to what happens on earth, the things that are done and said without love are like a a noise that grates on your nerves, that irritates you, and you just want to run away from it. An amazing statement. Truly an amazing statement when he says that. And so he's highlighting the fact that it really matters what's going on in our hearts. There's a show that Jan and I have been watching on Redeem TV called Vindication. And um, we're not really sure where the show is going in terms of the characters, but there's one character in there that's actually a mother in prison. And they, there's this one scene where she's really being nice to the person visiting her. And then after this person leaves, uh, her smiling face just turns into a scowl. And so you wonder if, does that mean she was just putting on a show? Is she Does that mean she was just being nice, but she really had disdain and hatred for that person? I kind of picture what Paul is saying here in this way, that he's saying the love that God calls us to is essential to delivering us from just an empty show. Empty sounds, empty actions that have no real love in them. And that we have to be very careful of that kind of thing. He goes on and he says in verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Obviously prophecy had to do with Um, speaking the very words of God. Mysteries had to do with God revealing things that we could not know otherwise. Uh, Knowledge, obviously, is truth that God shows us um, in various ways. If I have all faith, as to remove mountains. The Lord Jesus himself talked about if you have faith of a mustard seed, you could speak to this mountain and it would be gone. Uh, But he says, even if you have the knowledge of all mysteries and all knowledge. You have all faith, the greatest knowledge and faith that you could have, but no love, the kind of love Paul is talking about here. He says, I am nothing. It's almost like um, the idea I thought of in terms of moving a mountain. You may have seen David Copperfield, you know, when he makes a building disappear or, or whatever. Um, It's almost like Paul is saying, if you could make things disappear, what you're doing is really more of an illusion than reality. There's not the real substance to it that there really needs to be. Uh, In Mark 11, it says about the Lord, Jesus seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So was there nothing on that tree? No, there were leaves on that tree. But in one sense, there was nothing on that tree. Why? Because there are no figs on that tree. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. We might have a lot of leaves, like speaking, doing certain things. But if there are no figs, if there's no real love then there's really nothing on our tree. Which is a huge, huge convicting thing, I'm sure, for the Corinthians if they really thought about what Paul was saying. Because Paul is basically saying, when he says, I am nothing, he doesn't mean I'm not someone made in the image of God. He's not saying to believers, you're not someone redeemed and precious in the eyes of God. He's saying we're nothing with regard to what we were created to be and redeemed to be. We were created and redeemed to be those who love like God loves. That's why he made us in his image. That's why he redeemed us so that we could actually love like God loves. I've used the illustration of a hammer. I can use a hammer to prop open a door. I can use a hammer to keep paper on my desk from flying away. That's not what hammers were made for. Hammers were made to drive nails and to build things. Why were you and I created? We were created in the image of God to image God. The Bible says God is love. We were created to love like God loves. And if we don't love like God loves, in that sense, we're nothing like what God created us to be. We're not anything of what God created us to be, if that's not somehow, to some degree, true of us. Then finally in verse 3, he says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The word for profit there means it helps, doesn't help me at all, uh, doesn't benefit me at all, which is an interesting way to put it. Obviously, we think in terms of uh, love benefiting others and love is desiring the good of others and pursuing the good of others but at this point he said it doesn't benefit me it doesn't profit me it doesn't help me uh, the same word is used in Matthew 16 when it says for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what will a man give in exchange for his soul the whole idea of giving all your possessions reminds me of the uh, the widow who gives her last two mites. Uh, the whole idea of being, you know, being burned, giving your body to be burned, reminds me of the three Hebrew children and the, uh, the fiery furnace in the Book of Daniel. You know, if you give those two mites, your last of your money, or you're willing to go into the fire and have your body burned. But if it's not an expression of the love that God calls us to and created us for and redeemed us for, then Paul says, it profits me nothing. It means God does not put his stamp of approval on it. It means he will not reward it. It's an amazing thing when you think about that. He's highlighting for the Corinthians that it is no small matter whether or not you're loving each other. This is my commandment, that you love one another and you corinthians you're not doing that you're you're valuing all these other things you're pursuing all these other things things but you're not pursuing love uh, jan does some tutoring hopefully i'll get this right as i heard i've heard her talk about working with students in her tutoring i think there's one in particular that has this reward system and so if he follows directions he gets points for it and when he accumulates enough points he gets rewarded for it and i think his mom provides the reward. Well, if he doesn't pursue that, then he doesn't get the points, he doesn't get the reward. And the reality is, God says, there are things that I've created you for. And if you want my stamp of approval and you want a reward, then I want you to give your life to what I've called you to. I don't want you to just prop, up, prop open doors. I don't want you to just, just hold down paper on a desk. I want you to do what, I've created you to do, and I want you to seek me for the grace to do that. I want you to embrace that as your goal in your marriage and with your children and with your siblings and and with your parents and with your co-workers. I want that to be your goal in life and make sure you don't do like the Corinthians who had other goals, other things that were more important than loving in that way. Well, let me bring this kind of, bring it home by talking about the fact that one of the things that's very, very important to realize is that when we talk about love, the love that God calls us to, we have to realize that he's calling us to love like he loves and to remember that he indeed is love. 1 John 4, 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God. Think about that. The one who does not love, as Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, as the Bible talks about in all kinds of ways, the one who does not love in that way does not know God. For God is love. Which means a huge evidence that we've been born again, and that we have saving faith, is that we love, not perfectly, not to the degree that God loves and Jesus loved when he was here. He loved perfectly. And that's why we're saved is because he loved perfectly and he died for us who don't ever love like we should. And yet, if we've been born again, if we have a true faith in Christ, it will be our heart, it will be our prayer. To some degree, we will give our lives to seeking to love like God has loved us and calls us to love. But the point that I want to make in light of the first three verses is when we think about the idea that God is love, in light of what Paul says here in the first three verses, one of the things that we need to realize about God is God never says anything in the Bible that isn't an expression of his heart, an expression of his true love. So when he says things like what we find in Ezekiel 33, he's talking Israel, rebellious Israel. says in verse 10 of Ezekiel 33, Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? Then God says to Ezekiel, Say to them, speaking for God, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, why then will you die, O house of Israel? When you hear God speaking those kinds of things, you want to make sure you believe that he really means those kinds of things, that he's speaking from his heart, that he's speaking out of love, that he's not a clanging symbol. He's not just making noise. But that is a true expression of his loving heart for sinners, all sinners. There's a scripture in Matthew 5 where it talks about the question of how should we understand what God does in this world, both for believers and unbelievers. In Matthew 5, 43, it says, Jesus is talking, Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father ...who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good... ...and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect or complete... ...as your heavenly Father is perfect... So when God sends rain on unbelievers, is that an empty show? Is that an empty act? When he sends sun on unbelievers, is that an empty show? Is that an empty act? No substance to it, just a good thing? No heart behind it? Absolutely not. That's the whole point of that passage is love your enemies. Don't just love those who love you, love those who don't love you, which is every person who hasn't given their heart to Christ by God's grace. And so he's saying that God never speaks empty words. He never does empty deeds. They are words filled with love. They are deeds filled with love. And every person you meet You can look at the good things God is doing for them and say, you know what? That's God loving you. Because that's what the Bible says. He loves his enemies. He doesn't just, in an empty way, say, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't just do things for unbelievers without any heart behind it. And that's why he could say, That's why I don't want you to do that. That's why I don't want your words to be empty words. That's why I don't want your actions to be empty actions. Because that doesn't image me. That's why Paul is talking to them the way he is. Well, Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite preachers, uh, preached a sermon um, based on Romans 10, 20, and 21. and the verses in that uh, passage say, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith all day long, I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. One of the things that Spurgeon dealt with under his ministry was the reality that there were people who were saying, you cannot believe in a loving God that there is a loving God toward you until you're saved, until you know you're one of the chosen. And Spurgeon said, that's not true. That is just not true. Um, What he said is this. He said in that sermon, lost sinners who sit under the sound of the gospel are not lost for the lack of the most affectionate invitation, which means whenever an unbeliever hears the gospel preached, It's not an empty, clanging symbol. It has the love of God behind it for those who are hearing the gospel. He says, God says, he stretches out his hands in that passage in Romans. What did he wish them to come for? It's kind of like, you hold out your hands to your little child. Why? Because you want them to come. That's the picture there. He says, what, what did he wish them to come for? Why to be saved? Then he asks the question, Now, was God sincere in his offer? Well, it says, opening his arms to rebellious Israel, just an empty show. No heart behind it. Don't really care if they come or not. Don't want them to come or not. There's no love in those open arms. Is that really what was going on there? Spurgeon says, God forgive the man who dares to say he was not sincere. But there was no heart of love in that offer, in those extended arms. He says, God is undoubtedly sincere in every act he did. It's exactly what Paul is talking about here in this passage. And he says, the reason why people are not saved is because they will not have the love of God. He closes with at least this portion of it by saying, He stretched out his hands all the day long yet they were a disobedient and gainsaying people and would not have his, speaking of God's, love. So my my point is simply to say, when we think about what Paul is saying here, he's encouraging us not only to think about our love and what kind it is. Is it simply a drawn out love or is it a given love? but also to consider God's love. How do I understand the love of God, both toward me and even toward those who do not know God? The bottom line in all this is that love is not only the highest priority, but absolutely essential to all of our lives before God. One of my favorite songs, and I've shared this song before, is the love of God. This goes like this. The love of God is greater far than, than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forever endure the saints' and angels' song. The third verse says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Meaning the greatness and excellency and wonder of God's love is beyond telling, expressing, uh, even picturing and yet, we need to understand that God calls us to love like he loves. But that's really the evidence that we are the children of God, that we are sons of the Father. Let me just close by highlighting the fact that in this, these three verses, three times Paul says, but do not have love, but do not have love, but do not have love. What does it mean to have love? Ultimately, it means to have God. That's what it means. Because if God is love, and if the gift of the Holy Spirit is ultimately the gift of the love of God to us as well as through us, if we do not have love at all, like what Paul talks about, it is because we do not have God at all. Because God is love. And so Paul is highlighting the fact that this love is essential. And the reality is, if we're true believers, we all have a measure of this kind of love. And there are true believers in the church at Corinth. But they needed to grow in this kind of love. They needed to realize that their goal in life had shifted. And they were not relating to each other in light of how God did, had loved them and was loving them. Ultimately, we love this love, we have this love when we receive Jesus. To receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior is to receive the God who is love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that somehow it would be encouraging to us as we think about our own relationships, as we think about how challenging they can be in various ways. And part of that challenge is we're not pursuing what we should be pursuing in those relationships. We're pursuing something other than the love you've called us to show in those relationships. And so we make it even worse. We make it even harder. We complicate it even more when our goal for those relationships isn't your goal for those relationships. And the Corinthian church was doing that very same thing. They were compounding the challenges of living together as a family and loving each other because they did not have the appropriate goal in their relationships, did not have the appropriate goal in the exercise of their spiritual gifts, and living together as a body. So I pray, Father, that you would help all of us, myself included, So we think about what really is my goal in all of my relationships, in all of our relationships. Is it, no matter what, to love like you've called us to love and to seek you for the grace we need to, to understand what that looks like and to, to get the the grace and the enabling we need to be able to do that more and more, not perfectly, but to do it more and more truly. And so help us all, Father. And Father, I pray for anyone here who hasn't got that kind of love because they haven't received Jesus, who is love. I pray that you grant them grace to do that even today, to turn from their self righteousness to turn from their self-determination and to rest in jesus as their savior and their lord and we pray that as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the cross which is the ultimate expression of your love for us please prepare our hearts to celebrate what you've done for us and to seek to live it out this week we thank you for your word we thank you that you've told us this that we might know the joy of loving like you love in greater, deeper, richer ways. Help us to hear what we've heard as an expression of your love for us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.